Hi, and welcome to The Accidental Intellectual, a podcast where we talk to people working in health-related fields and get to know the human behind the expert. Today, you're hearing from me, Rachel Lyon, and Lee Propp. In today's episode, we sat down with the lovely Dr. Hilary McBride. Let's hear Dr. McBride introduce herself. My name is Dr. Hilary McBride, and while I practice psychology, including all of the things that that encompasses, like teaching and research and clinical work, like intervention, treatment, diagnosis, and assessment, all of those pieces, I, I think about myself not necessarily first through my professional identity. I think about myself first through my personal identity, and that often, I think, extends into what I do in my professional work. But I, I experience myself as a curious a person who loves people and is really interested in the mystery and vast expanse of being human and have been for a long time, in particular, the the uniqueness of our lived experience and the commonalities that stretch across our experiences of being human and find myself um, loving the work that I do because of that. It was so lovely to hear about her journey into the field of psychology and about how her personal and professional identities intersect. Without further ado, let's get right into our conversation. We hope you enjoy as much as we did. So, hi, and welcome hi. to um, the Accidental Intellectual. We're we're so thrilled and honored that you're you're with us here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. What a joy to be with you. Right. So we're going to start. We started a new thing this season where we're going to ask our guests these like rapid fire questions. Just okay. like fun things, get to know you. All right. Mountains or okay. the ocean? Ocean. Coffee or tea? Tea. Dogs or cats? Um, uh, neither an option. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's an option. Cats, cats if I had to, I guess. I don't, I don't know. Neither. <laughs> um, Saturday or Sunday? Saturday. Paper agenda or an electronic calendar? Oh, paper. Puzzles or board games? Puzzles. What's worse, laundry or dishes? How big is the pile? Mm, I need more information. Both big. Both are big. (laughs) Um, I'd say I'd pick laundry, so dishes are worse. Uh, Cups in the cupboard, do they belong right side up or upside down? Um, Mugs go right side down, cups go right side up in our house (laughs) very organized all right last one do raisins belong in oatmeal cookies um yes but not at the exclusion of other things uh i would have raisins in oatmeal cookies i would also have chocolate chips in oatmeal cookies or nuts i'm not saying that the oatmeal with the raisin is superior to other cookies (laughs) This is like the true academic answer. Like, I need more information. I'd like to define the terms. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Some of those questions, I was like, oh, no, I know. I know exactly what I prefer. But with that one, it's, um, yeah, I have I have less rigidity around it. Yeah. <laughs> mm. yeah it's, a, it's a helpful trait in many circumstances. Mm-hmm. We really, I guess, to start off, want to get a sense of how you got here. And if you could tell us a little bit more sort of oh, about yeah. the place in your career that you are right now and the journey and like yeah. the path to, to get there. Sure. And please feel free to jump in with any specifics or clarifying questions as needed. Um, I, I come from a family of therapists. 
I mean, there's an obvious joke there, I'm sure, about how I was <laughs> brought up in the family business. I mean, we had conversations yeah. growing up constantly about dream analysis and interpersonal patterns and processes and um, boundaries and, and things that I feel in retrospect uh, were, so, were so rich to have as part of the fabric of my family growing up. And yet it was never really my intention to become a psychologist, to become a, a scholar in this way. In fact, I remember a really early experience. I remember growing up seeing my dad's dissertation on his on the, the library wall in one of our offices at home. And he, I remember asking him about it and saying, I will never write a dissertation. Look at, oh my gosh, yeah. look at how much paper and how many words. Like, this is not, that's not okay. That sounds horrible. And so, of course, it wasn't really my intention to pursue the, the career that I have, but I imagine we can't separate ourselves out from, as well, I mean, I shouldn't say imagine, it's clear and obvious from our theoretical knowledge in the field that we can't separate ourselves out from the context that we grew up in. And so my, my attunement to dynamics and my care for people as infused in my family of origin found its way through in me. And I originally went to university studying performance violin. So I'm a violinist and thought wow. that that would be my career trajectory. And so have spent most of my life studying violin extremely rigorously and woven into my story, it's, it feels important to know it was also like a high degree of acuity of mental illness that showed up in a number of ways, an eating disorder primarily being one of them and the ensuing treatment that's required from such a complex diagnosis and medical presentation. And there was a point in university where I, I felt like violin playing was somehow entwined with the way that the eating disorder and the pathology that's underlying it manifested in my life. And so it felt really important for me to take a break from playing violin. And uh, my dad, who happened to be a faculty in the Department of Midwifery, what was he faculty? He definitely did instruction and uh, was connected to the Department of Midwifery here at UBC in Vancouver, uh, had always spoken so openly about the politics of women's bodies and um, the the importance of women's agencies and determining reproductive rights and things like that. And so when when I was looking for what do I do, I, I need to repair some of the things that are inside. And I, I don't feel like I can keep playing violin and be a healthy person. It's somehow the perfectionism and the rigor and the, the rigidity is, is too intertwined. I, I don't know where it really came from, but it was like this seed emerged that had been planted a long time ago in the soil. And I, I decided I really wanted to be around birthing women. And I really wanted to be around the experiences of women trusting their bodies and understanding the body is more than an object that we want to disappear, but the body is intrinsically valuable. So I went um, and lived in the Philippines for a little while at a birth house and spent quite a bit of time learning about midwifery and being a doula and learning what it meant to accompany people through this wave of intensity that might at times see insurmountable, but brings about transformation and, and hopefully life. There was something about that process, the metaphor of it, the, the being in 
the in it with people that did something to me, woke something up in me and I healed a part of me. And so came back um, from Asia, really wanted to be a midwife and thought, well, while I'm waiting to get into midwifery school, I'll, I'll study psychology. It just feels like something I'm kind of interested in. And then it was like, yeah. oh, 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 I see what's happening here. <laughs> I really kind of put it together that I wasn't interested in, I wasn't really interested in the medical aspects of birth. I wasn't really interested in the routine and a very necessary and appropriate care that goes along with being a medical provider. I was interested in the psycho-spiritual journey that a person takes when they are confronted with something that feels insurmountable and is pathologized and medicalized and yet is actually good and okay. And when accompanied well with someone who is attuned and skillful is transformative. And that really started to shape my metaphor for understanding the journey of psychotherapy, for understanding the process of lifespan development, um, these crises or markers throughout our development that feel insurmountable, but when accompanied well and skillfully produce more of the self, the, the create the emergence of life, so to speak, and the natural processes of life. So um, that, I mean, there are so many things I could talk about there in terms of birth and perinatal mental health and how that's impacted me now, um, because that is one area of clinical and research specialty for myself. But I think for the, the most part, really what that experience showed me was that I, I want to be with people who are in experiences and skillfully support them to trust themselves and through the context of our relationship empower them to access what life looks like and feels like inside of them. And yeah. And so went back to grad school and kind of did the whole thing, did my master's and then did my doctorate. And um, now I, I teach and research and write and sit at this, uh, what feels like for me, intersection between the silo of the academic community and um the public world and the discourse that we have uh, as a society and culture around mental health and what it means to be human and often try to translate between these two communities. Although I do that with varying degrees of success, depending on <laughs> the day of the week. But um, I really love, I love the experience of being human. And I, I don't think that needs to exclude the experiences that are painful and hard to understand, um, including things like mental health issues or the, or the suffering of being alive in the world that we are. And for me, it feels like this part of the way that we transform democracy, the way that we transform culture and create communities that, that healthy people can flourish and grow in is we tend to wounds. We tend to our wounds. We tend to our cultural wounds. We learn new ways of being together. And in, in doing so, we heal ourselves, we heal each other, and life can emerge through that, through that intensity. So that's a, that's a summary, but I'm happy to share more about research expertise. I didn't really talk much about like publication or research methodology. I don't know how much you want to get into the, the actual academic side of things, but that's more of like the narrative of, of my life. Mm, yeah, that was a uh, really wonderful. Um, it's, it's interesting to me how, like when we asked you to introduce yourself and mm -hmm. sort of telling the story of your life, there has been so much of the personal that has really mm -hmm. um, been brought through. And I think that's, 
I mean, perhaps uh, indicative of, of the work that you you do and are involved in, but to me speaks mm-hmm. to a huge self understanding. Like it, mm. it's always so interesting to me when you ask people, you know, tell me tell me who you are, what do you do? Yeah. And I'd say eighty percent of the time, it is very much focused on professional success and all of the accolades that they've achieved. But I think it's mm. which is not unimportant. But it always strikes me as interesting and really lovely when someone gives a a really rich story. And I wonder, Mm -hmm. was that always Mm -hmm. the way you would have introduced yourself? Mm, I think at different seasons of my life, to lead with accomplishments felt like a way to garner social power. Uh, Mm -hmm. So if I appeared young or was in a context with other people who have more social power to to begin with a list of my credentials and trainings or grants or whatever would be would be a way to say, no, I I belong here, too. Mm -hmm. Um, But I when I think about the like the political side of academia and the way the process of interpersonal relationships and self-navigation in the academic sphere I think about how we are groomed to dehumanize ourselves and how that influences and impacts the way we treat students, the way we uh, treat our patients, the way that we do research, the way the the politics of the particular research methodology that we choose. And it feels very hard for me to be congruent in my clinical and academic work where I'm asking people to be more fully human and trying to create structures in which that is supported if I am either dehumanizing myself or disembodied or creating a power hierarchy where now I position you as having to define yourself by your achievements and accomplishments and your CV. Hmm. And it doesn't really invite us into dialogue or community or kinship it invites us into one-upsmanship or self-validation or um, kind of this perpetuation of, I mean, I'm sure you've heard it all said, like the publisher perish mentality, like you're only as good as your last achievement. And I just don't think we build healthy societies or healthy relationships when that's the framework that we sit upon. So for me, the sense of wanting to be congruent in, in being a person it feels important that the process of my professional work aligns with the things that I'm saying in my professional work, which is that, you know, equality and mutuality and connection and coming alongside and narrative matter and their healing. Mm, yeah, I think a lot of that really sort of speaks to me and the understanding mm-hmm. that I'm shaping of, of what, like, what is psychotherapy? I think it's, it's less than a mm-hmm. year's time where I'm going to have to write essays for, to apply for an internship. And, mm-hmm. and I, I, I struggle with the, the really beautiful explanation you've given and also the, the teaching of, I mean, there has to be a professional boundary, but I wonder mm-hmm. how, how you see those worlds and how you, how you navigate them. Well, I think, so I, I'm thinking about the kind of theoretical influence on my clinical work that tells me, that offers me a map about like, how do people grow and change and heal? And one of the paradigms that I love returning to is that for growth to happen in a therapeutic context, the therapist has to be brave, right? And, and has to be just a little bit braver than the patient or the client, 
so that the client or patient can feel a sense of, I can be brave here too. And yet we are skillful in the way that we are brave with people in the room. We, we take a risk to be more immediate instead of staying in what would be comfortable. We self-disclose about what's happening. Wow, when you said that, I felt so sad that that had happened to you while you are growing up. I'm so sorry. How is it to know that I'm sad? How is it to feel my sadness with you? Can we stay with that for a moment? And the bravery uh, doesn't take away from that professional boundary. In fact, it is, um, I think it is part of how we be even better professionally. But the discernment I, I hear you're asking about, and for me, like a a template that a couple of colleagues and I often refer to is the idea of sharing, sharing scars, not wounds, or sharing something that is useful or relevant to, to the mission of the work and trusting that I have places and people that can hold the things that are unfinished so that they're not being, um, they're not being distributed into the hands that are not necessarily safe. To, to hold the stuff that's going on for me. So I often ask the question, like, does it feel raw? Or if I shared this, would it be because I want to be heard or because it's useful for this context? Or how much, how much do I share in such a way that you know me and that I'm reducing a hierarchy that's exclusionary, but not so much that I'm asking you to do something for me transactionally in this moment? And I think what that means is we have to be astute in discerning what's the relationship, what's the context. And it is much easier to have some sort of prescribed um, metric of what we share and what we don't share. And it is much harder and requires much more self and relational attunement to ask in every situation, what would I like to share here? And how will that impact those people? And what do I need? And, and is this the place to get that need met or not? So perhaps the answer to your question that was long-winded and perhaps verbose, but I, in summary saying, um, I think we self-attune and we attune to the context and this is how we are healthy people. And when we do that, we can figure out, I, I mean, I have learned to trust myself. So I've learned that I know in my kind of like decision-making self capacity that if I am attuning and I'm sensing and I'm thinking about myself and my needs across time, that that I'll make a good choice and that I'll be able to handle the impact of whatever happens. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good point about being able to trust yourself mm -hmm. and making that judgment. I guess I'm curious about um, maybe some of your more public facing work. Mm -hmm. um, we, we would love to, I guess, I guess there's two pieces to my question. One is sort of the Other People's Problems podcast. Mm -hmm. I'm so curious how that came to be. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I would love to hear the story about that. Yes. And then also, um, I guess, in the, in the context of boundaries, how you balance sort of this public-facing piece of mm -hmm. your work with, mm -hmm. with boundaries and also keeping some things to yourself. Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe I'll... I'll answer that question first because it feels topical based on what I was just saying. Again, the the question is like, who who is hearing this? What's the context? What am I trying to do? Is it useful? Would I share this with a client if they knew it? You know, would I share this in my office with someone? Um, does mm -hmm. it 
create an opportunity to be human? Does it model humanity? Um, that I'm just asking myself questions a lot of the time. And again, to come back to what I said, I, tr I trust myself. And I also trust people in my life to give me feedback about how things land if it's too much. And so I'm probably more than anybody else erring on the side of um, holding withholding information to be respectful of myself primarily and yeah. not expecting that when I share things that I'm doing that to get something from other people, but more to say like, Hey, let's, let's be in a dialogue about uh, he, being human together. But I understand that it's a restricted view of a person that social media, that public facing work is public facing work and it's public relations and that is not the same as intimacy and relationship or a therapeutic relationship or a marriage or friendship. And I don't treat it as such. And perhaps that makes it easier just to feel like, oh, these are things that I, I'm okay to share with people for this particular reason, but I'm not expecting relationship or, or self-worth to come out of this context at all. So I feel like I hold it extraordinarily loosely. And um, as much as I really love engaging with an online community, because I think it allows it allows us to reach each other more now than ever because of the pandemic. Um, it's not actually something that I, as much as I'm saying, I, I, I think about the questions, what will I share and what will I not share? I don't really think about social media very often. It's not a big part of my life. I'm not on it constantly um, or scrolling or like taking things in. Mm -hmm. So it really doesn't feel like the primary way that I interact with people at all or the way that I understand myself. And I think the ability to be like, oh, that's kind of over there and I can engage with it when I want to. And like, I can think through these things and, and make good judgments. Um, it just doesn't feel like it consumes a lot of time or space for me, but I also understand having grown up with family members who were therapists who also did public work uh, and sat at different intersections that I've had boundaries modeled well and perhaps have had boundaries um, in certain ways. I don't know, maybe exaggerated is not the right word, but I think about growing up in my home and the climate of privacy and just mm. confidentiality and privacy and what you share and what you don't share was constantly talked about. In fact, if I would have a conversation perhaps with one of my parents and say, I'm, you know, I'm wondering about this about my sibling. They'd say, well, why don't you go talk to them about that? Because I don't want to give you information about them. Like that's triangulating. <laughs> and like that was a conversation <laughs> growing up as a child. Right. So like, oh, like how I relate to people maybe like was overly thought out at times, but I just, I want to present this idea of being thoughtful and discerning and boundary, but also like holding it really loosely and not caring so much and not expecting that to be a big part of my self-worth or value or take up a lot of time in my life. And somehow it is both. Yeah. So that's, that's that kind of question. Is it okay if I jump over to the other one? Of course. Of course. Yeah. Please. So other people's problems came out of an idea from the producer of the podcast and her name's Jody Martinson. And she has, has an incredible history of doing meaningful work. So as a producer for CBC, she has done a number of projects that communicate in ways that are so obvious that she can handle sensitive content and is interested in, cha in challenging um, some of our assumptions, I think, as journalists do well. And she has an experience of realizing, well, ther therapy is not at all like what we see on TV. Like, what? What? Mm. Like, this is, there's some, some mismatch here between what's actually going on in therapy and the portrayal of mental health services 
in the media and we need to bridge that gap. So she started reaching out to a number of people and somehow came across my work and my name, um, I think through a referral from somebody else who was interested in the project at that time. And this was probably in 20, would it be 2016? So many, many years ago. And we there was years of conversations that happened with numerous people before I even got involved. And so a lot of people ask about like, was it, did someone hear like, how, how should we begin? I can't remember what Esther Perel's podcast is called. Mm, um, where should we but, begin? Yeah, yes. where should we yeah. begin? And so we had been in production for about 18 months before we even heard about that podcast. And mm. I think there's something so cool in the synergy of the collective unconscious when like, okay, something needs to happen and it just kind of emerges from yeah. creative minds. So yeah, there were many iterations of what the podcast was going to look like and lots of ethical conversations and reviews and lots of lots of concern for client welfare, understandably. And what we found time and time again with the project is that people who didn't want to do it said no. People who wanted to say yes said yes and then were able to change their mind and felt really empowered in their ability throughout the course of the project to be like, no, this doesn't feel good anymore. And the therapeutic conversations that come from that in terms of people being able to set boundaries and feel those respected and how healing that can be. But then most obviously is for people who have said yes, the impact on their life and being able to share just therapy with other people because they're not coming in doctoring what they say. They're not coming in. Um, hoping to, to, you know, with some other agenda of being heard, they're just coming to therapy and somehow by coming to therapy, they can help other people that for people feels like this in, incredibly empowering um, offering to our, to our society. So there is something that has happened in being able to say, I can just do my work, but somehow I also know it's helping other people in a really obvious way. That feels good for me. And then we don't really have practices of doing this often in, in psychotherapy for people who are out in the community, but listening to recordings of your own therapy is profound in terms of the ability to get insight about yourself, to give yourself feedback, to uh, self-reflect on perhaps your social skills or mannerisms, or like, oh, no wonder people react to me that way. That's how I talk about this. All the way to seeing <laughs> progress and assessing um, assessing how far a person, how, how far you have come or being compassionate towards yourself when you hear something outside of yourself. So there is this really interesting secondary gain that comes from the project outside of maybe like the activism pieces where people are reporting that listening to the audio is stirring things for them, even before it gets released. And then on top of that, there's all the feedback from people saying things online of course, they don't know who the clients actually are and have no way of contacting them. But as you know, clients, I'm sure, have, have heard their friends say things or hear it on the radio or hear people talk mm. about the podcast. And like, wow, I, I feel so seen and so supported. And I had no idea that my work, just being me and healing, could impact so many people. So there's, yeah, there's all sorts of far-reaching implications and uh, maybe like implications internally intrapsychically from doing a project like this but I'm, ha I'm happy to talk more about it or my experience yeah. of it but that's kind of how it came to be and and some of the things that have come from it 
Yeah, I think you you did such a wonderful job of highlighting all of the really positive things that I think mm-hmm. sort of were a list maybe in my in my mind of like all of the great things that could come from showcasing therapy mm-hmm. in, in this kind of mm-hmm. way. Um, and I'm, I'm glad you noted the listening to yourself do therapy, because I think anyone who's had any sort of healthcare provider training has the experience of supervision yeah. and exactly. either watching recording with you or, you know, the two-way mirror or the, yeah. the thing on the ceiling we have, we have in, yeah, in yeah. these rooms. Um, and it's like, I mean, I think when I first started to have to do that, I would want to like crawl under the table and hide, like mm-hmm. listening to your own voice and then having someone else watch it with you is, can be horrifying. I think maybe do, doing this podcast maybe has helped because I have to hear the sound of my own voice right. all the time. Yeah. Um, but I wonder um, sort of what, how that experience of like sort of seeing, having tons of other people alongside you hearing hearing you be a therapist how has that experience gone through the years oh my gosh well I can tell you that my critic my inner critic around my clinical work as it's presented on the podcast really loves to come out because Mm -hmm. as is the case whenever you do a session you hear things after you're like why did I say that or like what why did I go there? And then there's this other piece about having the podcast condense. You take 50 to 55 minutes and you bring it into 20 minutes of audio. And I'm like, oh no, there was so much more in that session. No, I didn't, I didn't say that right away. Like if we're not editing in and adding in the audio or like changing things around, but we're condensing things. And so there's a part of me that has at times been like, no, I want, I want people to know, like, I also said this, or I also said that. And it, I think the big lesson for me, and it circles back to what we've been talking about already today, is if I don't let imperfect clinical work be seen, then I am not inviting people to do imperfect work. (laughs) But the narrative of perfectionism is self-perpetuating and creates a um, an idealism about the person of the therapist that is unattainable and unachievable. And I have certainly found incredible compassion for myself in seeing my therapeutic heroes do clinical work and have them talk about their mistakes and be like, oh, that's where I went wrong, right? The problem with that podcast is that it's not a teaching podcast. So I'm not getting to say, here's why I made that choice. And here's the thing I would do differently. And you know, here's what I know about this client that you don't know about this client. And here's what was happening like in the room at that moment. So you're not getting all of my process notes. But I think it's important that we produce imperfect work because I think it creates a community, particularly for therapists who often have the extra baggage of like, and because I have all these tools, I should feel better about myself or because I have all these tools, I should be able to do it perfectly. I should be a perfectly mentally well human all the time. Mm -hmm. I just want, again, I want the story of being human and the story for the person of the therapist to be wider than the one that we give ourselves and are given. And I think that means that my role as a, uh, okay, quote here, like leader in this way is that I get to model just like, here's a piece of my work. What do you make of it? And trust that I'm valuable and I'm good enough and I'm okay, even if it's imperfect, even if people critique it, even if people idolize it, it's actually disconnected from my worth and value as a person. And for my overall work as a therapist. So that, that stuff definitely comes up for me, but 
what a wonderful exercise to practice letting a project into the world and just letting it go and trusting that you'll be okay. Did you ever have a moment when you were first approached about the podcast where you maybe doubted or didn't think you were going to agree to do it? Or did you did you receive the proposal and you're like, yes, I'm I'm 100% in? Um, perhaps it's neither of those. I think, I think my, my decision making around that was probably more like I need lots more information, but I probably wouldn't have asked for more information if I wasn't interested or I didn't think that there was something that was compelling. But we in Canada, our CPA code of ethics has four principles and principle number four is oft neglected and seldom instructed well And that is our responsibility to society, that we have a role in the field, in the profession of psychology and psychotherapy to to participate in shaping discourse and mental health and communities and society. And for me, I constantly am looking for ways that my, my practice and my profession and my training allow me to speak into this principle for the responsibility to society and help me live that responsibility out well. And so there, I think the hook for me when I heard about the project from Jody was, of course, this is important. How do we do it yeah. well? What's the plan? How are we going to take care of clients and protect the right to self-determination and honor their ethics and boundaries? But yes, I want to know more. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think listening to you talk about approaching that project, it uh, it reminds me of something I've been trying to remind myself lately, and, and something you noted already is just following curiosity. I think we lose that. Um, mm-hmm. We lose that as we as we grow older, and we introduce ourselves with our professional accolades, and we do all of the things that we should be doing. And yes. I wonder if if you had anything to share with, I guess, us, but also the listeners who are mainly trainees and early career uh, professionals in, in the healthcare space of how you reconnect to that curiosity mm. when you feel mm-hmm. like a hamster in the wheel. Yeah. Um, for me, spirituality feels like a big, a big answer to that question. And Um, perhaps I'll redefine that. Like I have a religious and faith community that I participate in, but it feels like uh, sometimes religion and and faith communities are kind of the answers. And I think of spirituality as the questions. And for me, spirituality has, is the, the drive within us similar to, similar to sexuality, similar to development, similar to um, any of these these parts that feel wired in that allow us to expand and unfold and be bigger than whatever feels like it's right in front of us or just me or just just this. And so spirituality for me feels like if I was to think about a posture, it's like academia asks me to have my head down in a book and spirituality like tilts my chin up and says like, look at the big sky, look at the trees, look at your connection to the land, look at everyone who's come before you and who will come after you. And so for me, the spiritual practice of being in wonder actually feels like a discipline in a way. So to wondering about things, turning my attention or my orientation in relationships towards wonder feels like a, like a goal and an important thing that I think about and do often. Mindfulness really helps with that. Um, awe really helps with that. Um, 
I'm really taken by the work of Martin Buber, so the Jewish existential philosopher and his position around really seeing other people, really seeing. I'm sure you've heard of I, Thou and his, his work around that, but he has a very, I think a quote that's deeply imprinted on me that says, all actual life is encounter. So when I am encountering another person, I'm wanting to see see them and know them and explore and trust that I will never get to the bottom or to the fullness of who the person is. But I also want to do that with nature and I want to do that with systems and I want to do that with um, art and music. And I think I, my husband's an artist, so that helps too, because he's extraordinarily existentially minded and we discuss death on the daily and what it means to be alive and so there are all of these kind of like <laughs> like open opening things that are like oh yeah remember that and don't get so focused on on what you're doing the task that you're doing um so yeah i think spirituality is and the discipline of asking questions feels important mm -hmm. to me but i perhaps to make that more tangible and concretize it i'm i'm aware of a i, I always forget how to pronounce his name correctly. So, so I'm so sorry that I'm doing this. I, I need to make sure that I get it right. Thich Nhat Hanh, Thich Nhat Hanh, mm. um, the, the Buddhist teacher. Um, yeah. His work has impacted me deeply and he has an exercise where he's asking you to see the world in a grain of rice. And I think about some of his teachings and what that does for us to see connection, like to train our brain to see connections between things. And so uh, I have a friend of mine who, who has hacked this particular exercise and will like when he's feeling low or disconnected, he'll look at something and consider the history of it. So like, let's just say I've got, um, I've got a plant on my desk and I did not buy the plant and I did not plant the plant. So perhaps a hack here would be like, okay, where did this plant come from? Where did the soil come from? Oh, it came from this person. What is that person's story? Where did they come from? Where did their family come from? What are they doing right now? And seeing the world as ever unfolding connections between all things and how you can take a simple object and do that. Um, but I like to think about people that way too, or nature, or um, I think the original exercise has a piece of paper and says, can you see the cloud in this paper? Okay, well, the paper is made um, from wood and the wood came from a tree and the tree was nourished by the rain and the rain came from the cloud. So can you see the cloud in the paper? And these are little exercises that we do to, to stimulate interconnectedness and wonder. And I think enough discipline and practices like that allows us to trust that everything we see has a history. Everything we see is bigger and, and woven into everything else. Mm. Yeah, that was that was so beautiful. And I think I, I hear so much. I mean, I and, and Rachel as well is we're training in child and adolescent psychology. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I mean, it sounds so much to me like the questions that children ask. Exactly. Um, and and yeah. we forget, we forget how to ask them. Oh, or maybe it's so sad. Just, yeah. And I think what I'm hearing from you is, is we need to reconnect with that parts of ourselves. Yes. Um, yeah. which is difficult um, in the grind of everyday life, but uh, perhaps <laughs> tremendously important. Mm -hmm. Maybe even life-sustaining. Mm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, 
I definitely argue that. So I am being um, cognizant of time. So as we, we close, we, we generally ask our, our guests if there's anything that they can leave uh, leave trees oh. with. Um, and I, mm. I invite you to, to give us whatever you'd like. Um, any, mm. as you were saying earlier, imperfect offering to, to all those listening and to us. It can be something about failure or lessons from failure, or it can be something that you think has been a, a good learning experience for you. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm in a supervision group where even though I'm not doing any academic training anymore i'm i'm still engaging in ongoing clinical training to keep working on my skills and we tape ourselves and then we share the tape with our supervision group um and of course with client consent right these things are are implied but they're worth saying too and uh it is uncomfortable and so valuable and the expectation that we should stop taping ourselves and stop taping our clinical work when we are not trying to do it for a supervisor. Oh, something I just want to free us of as clinicians, like the ability to self-supervise and know, know that we can reflect on our work and keep growing feels like the only way to be faithful to the developmental process of the person of the therapist, which is to know that we, it will be years and years and years and maybe never before we go, oh, I've arrived. Oh, I know, I know perfectly how to do all of this um, flawlessly. So I want to encourage people to keep taping and taping specifically, but also to create experiences clinically where you have something similar akin to like the rich learning that comes from taping. So find your find a way to be stretched and keep keep learning, keep asking for input and feedback around things. And then doing my own therapeutic work. I mean, that I was in therapy for a very long time before I ever became a therapist or did training. And that um, it's so fascinating to me when clients come in and will say, oh, you, oh, you, you've gone there. And people will say, you know, I can sit across from therapist after therapist after therapist. And I know who is afraid of or is not afraid of going into the places that are the most painful because people settle, like clients, particularly those who have a trauma history are so micro attuned to what the therapist is doing that if we, if we have any sense of discomfort around going places, it will be revealed in the, in, in the sessions and people will sense that. So do your work right? Go to therapy. Um, I always say to patients, whenever I see them, it's often the very first thing that I say, I'm a therapist because therapy has worked and still works for me. And I'm not going to sell you a medicine that I won't take. I'm not going to tell you to do something I won't do. And that feels part of like the, the congruence for me of how I want to show up in that room. So tape your work, go to therapy. (laughs) Mm, I like that. It yeah. sounds, we just all really need to just lean into discomfort a little bit oh more. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And when we marry that with wonder of like, what will I find? Oh my goodness. And I can be safe with myself and I will be supported and I will be still be lovable with whatever I find and however I am in that experience of discomfort. It is so less scary to do that. Yeah. It's so less scary to do that. Mm. Absolutely. 
Um, well, this has been so wonderful. It's been so wonderful to hear mm. you talk. I was uh, listening to some of the episodes uh, before uh, in this and was reflecting with Rachel how lovely your therapist voice is. Um, just your voice. I don't. And all of the wonderful content that comes out, obviously. But um, it has been so wonderful to spend this this hour with you. So thank you. Mm, you're so welcome. Oh, my pleasure. Good luck with your training, and thank you for doing this project. that was an amazing interview with Hillary. She, she was so generous with her time and we're, we're so grateful that we got to speak with her. Mm, yeah, it was, um, it was like a, a, a very jam packed therapy hour uh, interview. Um, but it was, but it was mm-hmm. a lovely time. Um, yeah. I, um, I was talking to Lee about how I actually came to know of Hillary and her work and um, it was accidental as the theme of this podcast goes, I was um, walking home along Bloor a couple years ago, and there was a, like a sandwich board outside the theater on Bloor, and it said, um, other people's problems, conversation with Hillary McBride. And I had never heard of the podcast, and I was like, wow, that sounds really interesting. And so I ended up Googling it when I got home, and um this was several years ago now, but since then I've been such a fan of the podcast and and Hillary and her work. So it was so exciting to hear sort of the uh, the story behind how the podcast came to be and and her her work on the podcast and what that's been like for her. Mm, yeah, absolutely. I think I'm always um, struck uh, listening to those episodes of that podcast about how how real it sounds and it it, it is it's because it's real mm-hmm. real therapy in in context and in making sure it's all safe and, and done well but I think it's um everything about it is it feels like you're in the room there um with with her and the client yeah I loved what she talked about about um the importance of letting imperfect therapy be seen and how she just embraced that because I, I, I can feel as a trainee and I'm, I'm sure even later in my career, that would be an uncomfortable experience to, to have work that maybe isn't my best work or um, something that I think is, is perfect, uh, which is not the reality of, of any of the work mm. that I do. Having perfect work is just not, not possible all the time. And um, how she sort of, flagged it as a responsibility to society. I thought that was such a, a great attitude and an important message behind the purpose of the podcast and, and the impact that it has. Oh, absolutely. She's she's making, uh, you know, the mystery of, of psychotherapy so much more accessible to the public mm-hmm. in general. And that's, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's in our ethical code of conduct uh, mm-hmm. yes. professionals. And I think uh, it is quite an embodiment of that, of that message, um, which is really lovely. I think also in reflecting in, on that conversation, um, some of the, the take home messages that we got and some of the themes mm-hmm. that came up in the interview about, um, you know, reconnecting with society, I think, in especially at the graduate level. But, you know, as you progress in your career, there are times, uh, many more times than you probably like, where you feel kind of just like a hamster in the wheel, just churning out work. And 
uh, it never stops and there's the destination is always moving. And I think the, the idea to reconnect with that curiosity of, of why you really started, what, what makes you curious, what, um, you know, sets off the alarm bells and gets you all excited and then reconnecting with that is hard, but a, a worthwhile, um, a worthwhile goal to sort of keep reminding yourself of. Absolutely. Especially with sort of the climate of academia where um, she's right, there is sort of this pressure to to publish and, and keep producing work and, and success is measured oftentimes by how much work you produce, mm. uh, how many awards you've gotten, um, all of these sort of uh, very superficial markers of, of success. But um being curious is a great way to, f- to feel less like it's this never-ending cycle where you can never achieve or you never achieve enough. Um, and the fact that she introduced herself by by saying that she doesn't define herself by her work, I think is just so refreshing. Yeah, I think it's, it's an important message that I remind myself of all the time when people say, you know, who are you? And it, often the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, I'm a graduate student, but I that's not who I am. That, that's mm-hmm. what I do. And it, it's what takes up most of my days and, and some of my evenings and weekends, but it's, um, it is by no means who I am. And I think um, I, you know, that conversation that we had with, with Dr. McBride and as well as, you know, a number of other ones that we've had on the show and that I've uh, had with many friends recently is uh, just being conscious of, of how much it seeps into your life and how you, how much you let it define you because then when it, when it's gone you still want to have a full and, and rich sense of self left um absolutely which is what I took out of it so I I will absolutely carry uh many of the ideas um and conversations that we had with her as I you know try and finish this degree um and I hope <laughs> it resonates with many of you as well I'm an accidental intellectual I'm only human Though I'm an expert at times And I've only found success By failing the first time You've been listening to The Accidental Intellectual. Our podcast is produced by Holly Boyne, Mano Fiasin, Lauren Goldberg, Bronwyn Lamond, Rachel Lyon, Harrison McNaughton, Stephanie Morris, Lee Prop, and Ariana Simone. Our theme music is by Alexandra Willett and our branding by Maxwell McNaughton. You can check us out on Twitter at accidental underscore pod and on Instagram at accidental intellectual. Her website is www.accidentalintellectual.com. We'll be back next time with more stories from the humans behind the experts. Mm-hmm.